It's no surprise that our guest today still dreams of being the host of the Radio 1 Breakfast Show one day. He definitely has the gift of the gab. Right now, he's using that gift to introduce Four Pillars Gin to everyone he can. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we're inspired to live life one cocktail at a time by the best in the industry. As European Trade Relations Manager for Australia's Four Pillars Gin, Joe Worthington would never think of going to any meeting empty-handed. You can taste this generosity of spirit in every drop of their gin. Maybe that's why they've just been voted the best gin in the world at the International Wine and Spirit Competition. One thing before we go on to the interview, I'm sure you've heard that this is a heartbreaking time for Australia right now, as uncontrollable wildfires are destroying everything in its path. If you are able, please donate to one of the many charities helping the firefighting and recovery effort. Now let's hear from Joe. Um, so originally you said I was, I was from Leeds. That's actually not true. I am from the other side of the Pennines, which is Lancashire, because Leeds is in Yorkshire. Um, I, I was born in a place called Burnley. Which, and th- wait, there's a great rivalry, isn't there, between the two? Well, there's a great rivalry between Lancashire and Yorkshire, yeah. yeah and it stems from, well, I, I think it stems from cricket, because it's the white rose versus the red rose. Uh, and I'm a bit of a cricket fan as well as every other sport of, that you can imagine. Um, so being born in Burnley, I'm a big Burnley football fan. In actual fact, they're playing Tottenham this weekend in London, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, but I was born in Burnley, and I grew up in a place called Reed, which is about 25 minutes outside of Burnley, about 40 minutes outside of Manchester. Um, and I grew up with my mum and my stepdad, uh, Colin, who has been uh, my stepfather for... I'm 30 next week, so around 26, 27 years. Um so he's practically, he's practically my father to me. My father sadly passed away a few years ago, but I have big families on both sides and uh, lots of grandparents. And uh, my nan, bless her, still here. She's 96. Yeah, I know. And she only stopped playing, playing golf like three years ago. I And my grandfather, step-grandfather, still alive, 92. Yeah, they're, they're ticking yeah. along nicely, aren't they? And then mm-hmm. uh, I've got heaps of cousins as well and who now have kids and some of them have kids that have kids and all the rest of it. So it's a, it's a big extended northern family but i i do know that somewhere on my mother's side there's some irish in the blood so there's lots of you know kids who are not using contraception and things you know you know you know how it is irish it's an irish life not to generalize or anything not to, not to generalize of course i mean i've got irish blood in me um and and so yeah that was and i've i've lived in the i grew up in this village and you grow up in a village atmosphere so you play football for the local team you play cricket for the local team and everybody knows everybody's business if someone has an affair everybody knows uh it's like Emmerdale you know it's like a soap um but it was it was fun and I I made some friends for life and uh you know I'm even going out for dinner with one of them tonight because he lives down here as well so it's it, for me, uh, I think my mother and stepfather, obviously my father as well, but my mother and stepfather gave me one hell of an upbringing. I mean, I may, maybe don't tell them as much as I should. Uh, we dotted around until we settled in a place maybe when I was 12, which was Reed. Um, and I do believe that they withdrew me from my first high school because I was suspended a couple of times. Ooh, you're a bad boy. I'm a bad boy, which is essentially why I've ended up where I've ended up in this industry. Um, why well, you've ended up on my couch. Why I've ended up on your couch. <laughs> being be- interviewed, should be- I say. Being interviewed in this beautiful home. Um, but, but that happened. Um, and that was just me, what I thought was being a larrikin. But obviously when you're 11 years old and you set someone's blazer on fire with a Bunsen burner, it's oh. not all that funny, really, is it? Uh, they turn out to be quite flammable, just, just clothing. So I got suspended, I think. Uh, and then my my mother, bless her, she decided to take me out and put me into a different school about about 40 minutes drive away, which uh, turned out to be the best school I could have gone to, really, uh, mm-hmm. St. Augustine's, uh, which was which was pretty epic. Yeah. Well, I like that. Okay. Yeah, well, uh-huh. I grew up Roman Catholic as well. I mean, I... I there's this, this still obviously elements of religion in my life, but I wouldn't call myself religious. I've never heard anyone say that a Catholic school was epic, but that's cool. Well, I just had a, I just had a great time at school. Uh-huh. I, I really just did. I, 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 I mean, don't get me wrong, I was on daily report card 
for every teacher has to sign it for every single class ever. But I still had a great time. I had lots of friends, played played sports, and it was um, yeah all the way all the way through high school. I loved it. And were you ever thinking about you, what you were going to do when you grew up? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm. <laughs> I've always had full of these great ideas of what I want to be. Um, and actually, to this day, I still have the same dream. I still, my my dream was always to be um, the Radio One breakfast show host, present on radio. Um, I've got a face for radio, you see. Um, and that was always my dream, and it's still my dream to this day. I'm not going to give up on it just yet. But that was always my dream to to be on the radio, on being a radio show host in the breakfast breakfast time, which is bizarre considering I do most of my work now in the evening. <laughs> um, but yeah, I never actually knew what I wanted to do. Uh, my mother, my mother worked for mum worked for um, a couple of big newspapers locally, and she told me that was because I was re- very good at English language literature that I should pursue that and study mm. that, and. With her working in newspapers, she was always like, "If you wanted to become a journalist or anything of those sorts, we'd we'd look we'd look favourably on an English degree rather than a journalism degree." Okay. Uh, so naturally, I just fell into that and um, studied that at A level, which I did, and I got I got a great result in that, and then went on to study that uh, at university, first Manchester, and then hated it there. Went to Leeds, and then uh, and then yeah. And then I guess the funny story is, is that I did I went to three universities in three years and dropped out of every single one. Not because you were bad and lighting things on fire, I hope. Uh, no, not anymore. I only did that when I was eleven. Right. <laughs> um, I just dropped out of every single. It just wasn't for me. My my, I would never say that I've got any sort of um, ADHD, but I I, I have. I, I can't pay attention for something for so long that if it's not interesting. But you you did so well on your A levels. You I, would think that that would translate into. Oh, you think? You, you'd yes, think it did. But it turns out it didn't. When you get to when you get to organise your own schedule, uh, it turns out it's not. And uh, you, you can choose to go out at night and then not get up and miss a lecture. And you won't you mean, get in the all that fairy much queen yeah. or drinking all night. Yeah, and it was it was that down the rabbit hole I went. And I just, I ended up... Chaucer or drinking whiskey. That's exactly, that's exactly right. You know, which one do you want to do? Do you want to go out and drink some Midori Sours? Or do you want to... I'm sorry, it's a brand call. I just did a brand call there. Uh-huh. Um, do I want to go out drinking all night? Or do I want to Do I want to wake up to, you know, the 12th night, William Shakespeare, right. and learn all about Sir Toby Belch? Um, so, so was that your first, did you ever think alcohol, like, oh, I've got, uh, you know, I, I'm going to drink in these bars and then I'm going to get behind the bar? Do you know what? It was actually, I, I worked uh, for a company in Leeds for a couple of years and I always worked part-time whilst I was studying and, or, or playing football or rugby or whatever. Um, and they offered me over, over, a, it was one summer, um, I got offered a, uh, a job working in a in a really good restaurant in La Manga in Spain. Yeah, with uh, working with working with uh, with uh, basically one of my friends that I used to, that I grew up with. He worked there the previous summer, uh, and he suggested he suggested it to me. And I got in touch with this guy called Wayne, who has turned out to be a great mentor. Um, but he he uh, he said yeah come across for the summer so I went across for the entire summer and basically bartended in a, in a place in La Manga but whilst I was there I got an offer from the company I was working for back in Leeds saying uh, we'd love for you to come on board as a full time bar manager now <laughs> at the age of 19 years old or 20 I might have been I can't remember um, getting offered £17,000 a year feels like you've won the lottery <laughs> I'm going to be earning more than a thousand pounds a month. I can't wait. Uh, let me let me just see if I can, dick, you know, give sixty hours of my week to doing that. And of course, I said yes. And then I dropped out of university. And uh, my, I remember my mum and Danielle, who's my eldest sister. She was like, they were, they were, they were not happy. Oh, I'm oh, sure they were not happy. Why would? Why waste this this beautiful brain you've been getting? I'm kidding. That didn't say that. I'm just saying that about myself. Um, but say why waste? Why waste if you if you got any sort of gift? Why waste it by mm-hmm. not going to university and not getting a degree or an education? And my sister was like, "You're going to regret it forever." Uh, and it was actually my stepdad who said, "You know what? This is the first thing he's ever stuck at for any sort of 
grace or uh, grace period anything. and he was just like you know what maybe just give him a shot and let him let him just do what he wants to let him make his own decisions and I'm still 20 at this point so right. if, if if it turns out to be the wrong decision you've got time to correct it mm-hmm. and obviously at the time I didn't listen to that I just listened to yes go and do what you want right. to do but now looking back I'm now 10 years on I'm like okay well that's probably that was a probably a, a huge well that was a huge part of of my last my my career now someone in my family saying you know what go and do what you got to do and go and enjoy yourself and so that's exactly what I went and did and I went and worked for that company for another couple maybe another year and then I got fired (laughs) wait wait now while you were working at the company (laughs) before you were fired um what were the things that you were doing and did you love them do you know what it was uh I was working at a place called trio and it was this it was this Four, three or four story venue that on the it was a there was a basement rock and roll bar uh, and then on the middle floor it was a restaurant that was open all day for breakfast lunch and dinner uh, and then the top floor was Skippy's bar which was like a sort of more refined cocktail lounge that did smaller dishes uh, and I was the bar manager so uh, essentially it was just day to day running of the of the of the liquor interest mm-hmm. uh, but we had a great team and that's what I loved about it. It was a it was a family, and every single day you're working with people that you that you love, and and still to this day I'm in touch with, you know. So um, that was what was for me. My I remember people saying to me, "Oh, if you go for a career in hospitality, you'll never have a social life." But my career in hospitality was my social life, and that's why I absolutely adored it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was great. It was a lot of fun. But I, again, I was I was young and. I was young and I, and you can go you can go for nights on end with without sleep and you know you can you can say Tom Cruise in cocktail was your idol. Uh, <laughs> you're allowed to do that, uh, but it, it changes as you and and I'm not saying I'm mature because I'm far from it. But as you mature, uh, you you understand more about what it is that hospitality gives you. Which for me, it's given me a, a grounding on being able to speak to everyone. Did you know then this is the business I want to be in? I knew that I wanted to be in the business of people. Mm-hmm. That's what I knew I wanted to be in. I knew that speaking to different people every single day, whether or not it's serving the same product, and I don't know whether that means across retail or across food and beverage, I really don't know. But I, um, I just knew that I wanted to work with people and where I wanted to, it was great working in a family, uh, but also it was great just meeting and it's such a cliche. Because people say it all the time, you know, the the one thing I love about hospitality is that no two days are the same, but no two customers are the same. I mean, you can get regulars, which again is is great, but speaking, being in, being in hospitality is is being in one long conversation, and and that's something that someone who likes to talk, uh, that's something that I I didn't want to give up, and that's basically the reason why I'm still. <laughs> You're still, 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 you're still, still, you're still talking. I'm still talking. I'm still in booze. That's that is exactly the reason. Now you said you were fired. I was fired. Hopefully for not setting anything on fire. No, that's going to be the no, theme now. Do, do you know what? Like it was, it was. I think it was the right time. The bar needed some freshening up. It needed some fresh ideas. But I was in the wrong. Um, I tried to manipulate some stock to make us look like we were doing better than we were. Uh, uh, we were up lots of Guinness and down lots of vodka. So every time someone ordered a Guinness, I'd put through a vodka, that sort of thing. But it was, it was, uh, it questioned my integrity, but it also, uh, but getting fired also gave me a real kick up the arse. Mm-hmm. It shows that you can't just mess around with somebody's business like that. And it's not fair to them and all to, all to myself in the long run. Because if I'd have got away with that, I'd have thought that was fine forever. Right, of course. Yeah. So, Did you ever think about going back to university? Uh, I did, and I still do to this day. Um, no, I meant at that point. Well, well, I'm, at I'm saying point. at that point, okay. I did think about that. I did think about it, yeah, but mm-hmm. not for, for a fleeting <laughs> instant, I do believe. And so where did you go from there? Um, I actually applied. I saw an ad on, on something called cater.com. I was just trolling that day in, day out, looking for jobs in Leeds or Manchester, uh, seeing where I could go. And I saw an ad for a cruise ship, and so I applied for it. Um, and this cruise ship was called the Pacific Pearl, and I remember I had six interviews for it, uh, four on Skype and then two in person, and I ended up getting the role. Um, and what was the role? The role was head bartender for sixteen bars on the cruise ship. Oh. 
which was because having been a bar manager of a, mm. of a high volume bar and restaurant in in the student capital that is Leeds, um, they obviously thought I was a good fit, and they they want to make sure they're the right personality as well, which is why all the uh, interviews were in place. Um, and it was funny; I didn't have two pennies to rub together. And I remember getting all my flight details and they were flying me via Hong Kong. Oh, where was it? You didn't say where. It was oh, the sorry. Pacific Pearl. Oh, sorry, it was Pearl. the Pacific Pearl. So it was sailing all on the Pacific. So it was Australia, New Zealand, uh, Papua New Guinea, Samoa, Tonga, uh, Fiji, New Caledonia, French, Isle of Pines, and that, which is like French Polynesia. For how long? Um, so it was six months contracts. So you, you go and you work every single day. But um, before I landed there... They wanted to fly me via Hong Kong. So I got all my flight details and everything. And very quickly when I was in the air, I realised that the second flight was booked literally half an hour after my <laughs> after I landed. And I was like, there is no way, there's no way I'm going to make that you flight. Run, right? So I was in Hong Kong and I missed the flight. Uh-huh. And I couldn't get in touch with anyone from the cruise ship, the head office, because it was at night. And I hadn't really met anyone from... Um, uh, from Carnival, who owned P and O, I hadn't met anyone, so I was, and I had maybe fifteen pounds in my bank account. Yeah, so obviously I had to ring mum at the first, at the first, <laughs> at the first uh, hurdle. I ring mum and said, "Mum, I need some money." So my mum, I remember my mum sent me maybe 100, 200 pounds, and I got a hotel. And by the time I got that, then someone had rebooked me a flight in the morning and. It was all fine, but obviously I arrived 14 hours late. Did you I, miss the boat? No, I didn't miss the boat. Did I miss the boat? <laughs> uh, I didn't miss the boat, thank God. But what I was meant to happen, I was meant to get there in the evening and then sort of settle in, you know, have a night on the boat, uh, meet some people, meet the teams, because there's 120 bar staff, meet the teams. And then the morning we were going to do sail away from Sydney. Um, however, I got there one hour before sail away. And they were very much. They were very much. They were very much like you just got to. You got to get on. You got to get on. You got to go and. Uh, you got to go and change. Get your uniform. Blah blah. And then you start work. And I was like, okay, deep end. You know what? This is kind of the way I like it, right? Even even at twenty twenty one years old, I was just like, this is kind of the way I like it. I'm going to just go ahead first. Um, so then I get my, my induction was like later that afternoon. But at first they were like, you're just going to go straight in the bar. You need to learn all these cocktails, blah, blah, blah. But then we move away and we sail over. Oh, I can't remember the, I can't remember the, the, the scene. I, I can't remember what it's called, but it's a three day voyage from Sydney to Auckland. But the sea is, the sea is super rough. It's choppy sea, oh. as they call it. And I had never been on a cruise ship before. So I did not realise that I was going to get seasick, did I? <laughs> And when I say I got seasick, I didn't just get seasick. I was violently ill. I projectile in. I have, uh, that is the closest, and this is a bit, um, this is a bit dark. That is the closest I've been to wanting to die. Ever. It is the worst feeling I have ever had. And uh, they sent me down to the, uh, the infirmary and uh, uh, they could see I I was white. Actually, no, I've got a better story. (laughs) A better story. Uh, they sent me to induction first. Okay, induction was at the top of the ship, level fifteen, in the boardroom. Right, that's the worst. That's the worst part of the ship because that's the biggest movement. Oh boy! Rise and falling. Oh my god! And there was a there was I remember there's a, there was a girl on there and she was sat opposite me and she and later she told me that um, she just kept looking at me thinking he's green he is not going to last on this ship and I had to leave the induction halfway through uh, and they sent me down to the infirmary and they put me put me face down on a table pulled my trousers down and injected me in my bum drama means uh, and they were like go straight to your cabin now which I've not been to yet and hadn't met my cabin mate yet they were like go straight to your cabin and go this this is going to knock you out yeah dra- and I'm I sure. was and I was out for maybe 14 15 hours I know, right? And I woke up, I woke up and um, it would have been midnight maybe, I woke up um, and I woke up and I was like, I need I need food, I need to eat something. So I left my cabin and f- thankfully where I was, which was uh, the, f- the fifth floor, it was on the other side of the staff canteen and the crew bar and I heard lots of noise and music so I naturally went down there and I was in shorts and t-shirt and no shoes and I 
quickly got introduced to everyone straight away after a few beers and I had a couple of beers myself. The, 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 the funny thing is, is that that girl who said that guy looks green, she was called uh, Stephanie. Uh, I ended up being with her for eight years. <laughs> so we were together for eight years. Um, so you got your sea legs. I got my, I found my sea legs, yes. and I, I loved it. You work every single day, ten hours a day. Uh, might be split shifts. It might be six a.m. till ten, ten a.m. or it might be six p.m. till ten p.m. But you, you work ten hours a day. But it might be sp- split shifts, so it might all be all the way through. Uh, but it was a baptism of fire. But it was, I, it was one of the best things I've ever done. Yeah. And were you starting to then develop your you, your bartending skills you're making a classic cocktails like what kind of drinks things were you journeying them do you know what and it's the biggest thing I learned on that cruise ship uh, was were, I, I will get to the drinks things mm. the biggest thing I learned there after growing up in the north of England but the biggest thing I learned there was culture and people because 90% of all the bar staff were either Filipino or Indian uh, and I'd never been in an environment like that before that the biggest thing I can attribute to that cruise ship was working with with those people. I learned that that I learned people from these cultures have the most beautiful culture in the world. You know, holding hands before a Chinese dinner in in Fiji was probably you know a real eye opener uh, for, for people to say a prayer uh, to their own to their own Hindi god um, was a real eye opener for for a young lad. And they, these guys are people that have worked on cruise ships for years and thirty forty years old and. I got put in there as a 21-year-old as their boss, mm. you know? So I learned more about people than I learned about anything else. Cocktails, I'd say I learned more in Leeds. These were these cocktails on the cruise ship were, were woo-woos, June books, <laughs> cosmopolitans. They were, they were easy to pump out cocktails that were prepped in batches, you know? Huh. Um, they were very easy cocktails, but there was a couple of bars on there like... Um, I can't remember the names now, but where where the sort of expensive booze were, and that's where you can make a proper drink. Mm-hmm. And most nights I was placed there because that's where the most they, they were the most expensive drinks, and people with the most knowledge and stuff were placed on that bar. And uh, how long were you on the cruise line for? Uh, it was seven months, I think. Seven months I was on it. Mm-hmm. Um, did you did you ever think of renewing that contract and doing I, it again? I, I did think of renewing the contract. Um, but I chose not to. Um, there was various reasons behind that. One was obviously a, a girl; she didn't want to go back on either. Uh, and so we moved to we moved to London, and I went to work for a company called Coney and Barrow, who are widely known now as wine merchants. But they used to have twenty four bars throughout the city, the square mile of London. Mm-hmm. So I went to work for them at the age of twenty one or twenty two. Uh, and I was only there for six months before deciding to go to Australia. Now, was Stephanie from London, or Steph, she was Steph's from Kent? Okay, so she was English. Yes. Should I say? Yes. So you decided to up sticks, and we decided to move to London. Aus- so we, but, but I mean, to go to Australia. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, before that, I should mention that we 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 travelled twenty seven states in America. We did a road trip with the money that we made on the cruise ship. We, we did a we did a bit of a road trip, and I have I will always be a, a massively grateful to Steph for for allowing allowing me to do that. Uh, we're no longer together, by the way, so we don't have to dwell on Steph too. Uh, <laughs> that's it. We've left it. We've left, left, it. Let's we've leave left it. her in London. You're uh, on our to Australia. Yeah. If she ever listens to this, I'm sorry, Steph. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to leave you behind for now. Um, and uh, so yeah, we went. I went to Australia. I went to Australia. Mm-hmm. I hear you. Um, my my one, two of my close friends again. It seems to be coming back to this guy, but Jordan is caught. I'm going for dinner with him tonight. He was the one I went to Australia with. Uh, or many moons ago, 2012, I think it was. Well, why Australia? Uh, honestly, it's like it's one of those things. I, I think we'd seen a couple of people do it, but it's like how far can I get away from where I grew up? Ah. I don't know if that was the reason being, but also there's probably some naivety in there, which is like an English-speaking country. Uh, it's hot, you know. It's there's heaps and heaps and heaps of beaches. Heaps, see the Australian come mm-hmm. out. Um, there's heaps of beaches. There, apparently, it's a great food and food and uh, drink scene. Um, kind of just was like, let's just do it, and there was an offer, I think, on some flights with Thai Airways or Turkish Airlines, and we just bit the bullet and went. And uh, 
I we went to Melbourne and stayed in St Kilda, and I hated it. I'd messed up with I messed up with uh, my relationship, and it, I was arguing with I was arguing with my friends because we met two of our friends out there. I was arguing with everybody. I was angry. I was working I was working in a bar for cash, and it was just it was just sh- sh- sorry rubbish. It was rubbish. <laughs> um, and um, and that was it really and then very very quickly very quickly I decided that I'm going to go off on my own I'm going to go to Sydney um, and I'm just going to go on my own and the what I learned about myself is that I I am so social I love to be in social situations but I need I need my alone time I, I need to be able to uh, decompress and uh, uh, find my is it the find my centre again uh, and it was the best one of the best things I've ever done going to Sydney and I was in Sydney for three and a half four years did you know what you were going to do there or you just went and then I knew that I was pound gonna, of the pavement I knew that I was going to work in a bar I knew that I was going to uh, crash on a mate's sofa for a while um, I knew that's what I, I knew that I knew that's what I was going to do I, 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 other than that I had no plan I maybe had two thousand dollars in my in my bank my Aussie bank and that was it I knew mm. that I would have to find a job within probably three or four weeks if I wanted them if I wanted to actually survive I remember ringing my I remember ringing my parents and my grandparents for some money and I got told no uh, you chose to go to the other side of the world you look after yourself and I I despised them for it um, and I made I made I made a point of saying to myself that's the last time I ever asked them for money, mm. uh, which I upheld until until recently. But that's that's a different story. <laughs> um, so I decided I just thought that at that point I think that was my first sort of like realization that I'm now you know you're meant to be an adult now, mm. act like it. Um, and then I got a job uh, in a in a restaurant bar called Bondi Hardware obviously in Bondi just off the beach uh, working for two guys called Ben and Hamish um, who again are two they're probably they're two of the I've had I've had probably four or five mentors and, and those two are as close to the top as, as possibly you could be uh, I went to work for Ben and Hamish and I was interviewed by uh, by their group's bars manager called Lockie um, and he interviewed me I turned up in a jacket. I don't know why I did that. I wore a blazer to a bar interview, but I thought I'd try and make an impression. And I got the job. Wearing uh, the jacket, you made an impression. I made an impression. Um, now, the the wonderful thing about that is, is that Lockie gets married on the 10th of the 10th next year, and I'm one of his groomsmen. Mm-hmm. So I made... Uh, the reason I adore Sydney so much... Obviously, the city to surf in proximity is absolutely fantastic. But the reason I love Sydney so much is because of the people. Lockie, Ben, and Hamish. Uh, I also had friends, Dan and Sean, there as well. Um, they made that experience uh, mind blowing, really, um, to the point that you know Ben, Ben, and Ben and Hamish then sponsored me. They paid. They paid good money, good strong Aussie dollars to keep me in the country, because as a as an expat, you can only do six months at a time if you're on a working holiday. But they uh, instead they went through immigration and they sponsored me, and paid all that money to keep me on. So what were you doing for them? I, initially, I started just as a bartender. I was bartending, but obviously the pay in Australia is twenty twenty five dollars an hour. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, you work sixty hours a week and you're you feel rich. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I then progressed to bar manager, uh, and as soon as I got sponsored, they they have to pay you a minimum salary, I think, of like fifty five thousand dollars. And then they opened a new venue called SoCal, uh, which is a Southern Californian uh, sort of taco joint. Uh, but it was it was a rooftop. It had this outside area, and it was absolutely it was just it was just a gorgeous venue. And I ended up I ended up working my way all the way through up to general manager and staying there for a couple of years. Um, and then they opened uh, another another venue in the city, and I went to open that as general manager. And it was just a it was just a very fun time. And then um, I got the news that my dad had been taken ill. Uh, he got cancer, 
and and then the decision was made for me to move back home really mm-hmm. um so i moved i moved back to the uk um and so i just so i could and then i i wanted a job where i could have weekends free to obviously spend time with spend time with my old man but obviously i also knew that i um needed to work i had to work because you can't you can't uh, you just can't survive so I went to work for a Scottish brewery called Brewdog Brewdog uh, which you'll know now probably Um, which you know what has some great beers but I did not have a good time there it's a little bit you weren't up in Aberdeen, were you? No, I did have to go there once. Uh-huh. Like, it felt like once a week. It was like I had to fly to Aberdeen, then get a taxi to Ellen, right out. Yeah. Um, and uh, whilst look, they're a great company. I'm not going to bad mouth them at all. I, there's a little bit of brainwashing going on. We're the best. Peroni and Budweiser are rubbish, and all the rest of it. So in my eyes, I, I went full circle, and I was like, I was I was a craft beer fiend. I was a craft beer fiend for a while. Um, but in the end, after three months, I was like, "This really isn't for me. I am, I am, I am not interested in what's trying to be forced down my throat." Um, I wish them all the success, which, of course, which, of course. which they clearly have done. Back to Australia for a second, because we're kind of here to talk about four pillars. Jen. Yes, we are. Um, when did you start hearing about them? Because uh, they've only been around for about five years. So six years, six yeah, years, six, this six month, years, yeah. December the fourth, I do believe. Um, and actually, I was working for Applejack, so the company that Ben and Hamish owned. Um, we we started, we stopped uh, the rare dry gin, which is uh, the Four Pillars Hero. It's the baby. It's the yeah. first one, uh, which is a real classic cream, uh, cream clean, uh, citrus driven gin. That is just it just makes a wonderful gin and tonic and martini. So we start stocking that gin. And then I remember Stu and his team from Liquid Ideas, which is also his PR company, um, they came into SoCal and he gave me a bottle and asked me if I wouldn't mind making some Negronis with it. And I was like, sure, I'll do that. And then we just had a great laugh. I met Stu for the first time then. That would have been maybe a year into its inception, so 2014. But you started stocking it before you had met them. I don't think we'd stopped it before I'd met Stu, okay. no, because we didn't have a bottle behind the bar. All right. So he gave me he gave me personally a bottle, which uh-huh. which goes back to this, uh, which I'll get onto the, the how generous we are as a brand after. But he gave me personally a bottle, and he gave the bar a bottle, and asked us if we wouldn't mind making some Negronis, right. but charging us full price. Okay. Charging them full price. Okay. Which again is just a little thing, but it goes a million miles if when especially when you're a brand new venue. Um. And ever since then, Applejack and Four Pillars had a great relationship. We started putting them in cocktails on the list. We, we were supporting local. Before before Four Pillars, maybe there was one other gin brand. And that was it, really, of any note. Uh, I won't say the name. Uh, that, we're only here to talk about Four Pillars. We're only here to talk about Four Pillars. Uh, and I think now there's like over 100, 100 brands. So it shows how far it's come. But before that, it was just... It was the the big five. It was Gordon's Bombay. It was Beefy, Tanqueray, you know Hendrix, uh, and now and now where Four Pills is, it's the second best selling premium gin behind Hendrix only, and you know it's and it's and it's doing well, it's doing very well. So I guess you were blown away by it after having sipping the Negronis. Do, do you know what? It was just it was just a great gin, and for them to call it rare dry gin, and then you, you automatically ask the question, why is it rare? And you learn that. They put in these botanicals like lemon myrtle and Tasmanian mountain pepperberry leaf that that are obviously native to Australia. And it was all it was the brand story as well, how they're dedicated to uh, modern Australia and, and the craft of bartenders. And they wanted it, it, it did it. it. It struck a chord, and we wanted to support local. Uh, so after that, we start, like I said, we start putting them in uh, all on our specials boards in our menus. Uh, and then they start. We started holding in-house competitions across all the venues, where Stu would come down and judge and, and make a big song and dance. And very quickly, we cultivated a relationship like that. Um, yes, yeah, so that's how we met. Mm-hmm. And then that was that's yeah, so five years ago. So then you came back to work I did. in a different alcohol, which I, you no longer liked. Yes, and then I got a job working for another gin brand, which you may or may not know, called Portobello Road. Uh, and they uh, they were opening their distillery 
over at Notting Hill. And I was asked if, uh, well, I interviewed for the position of general manager to open that uh, venue. And it's a glorious venue. Mm-hmm. Um, so I took that job. I took that job. And um, that, again, is, uh, I, I put that in my, we'll put that in my top three learning curves of all time as well. Because that was the venue of six, four floors. Um, the G Institute, which is where you, where you blend your own gin, that was the, 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 the shop. Uh, it was a bar, it was a restaurant, and it had three hotel rooms as well. Right. So that was that was a, a big. It was a big job, yeah, big job. Sixty odd staff. Um, uh, I didn't last. I lasted quite a long time. I've always worked, apart from Brewdog, I've always worked for companies for quite some time. So I was against leaving. However, a man called Stuart. Donald Stewart Gregor III from Four Pillars had come over to uh, the UK and asked me to go out for dinner. And he was like, I am interviewing these 18 people tomorrow. Do you know any of them? And I knew a couple of names. That's it. And and so he went out for dinner. We had a good chat. And I was like, good luck in finding the person. He's, we never even mentioned me working for them. Uh, and then the next day, the next day he called me and he was like, where are you? And I was like, I've actually just finished work. It's about 6, 7 p.m. I've been there all day. And he was like, he was like, oh, I'm here. Do you want to come out for a drink? And I was like, all right, you're only in, a, you're only in London for a few days. I'll come and meet you. We've had a good relationship for a few years. And he was like, he's like, ah, oh, mate, they're all rubbish. <laughs> um, and I was like, well, I'm sorry about it. He was like, he was like why, don't you just, why don't you just take the job? And I was just like, I can't, Stu. I can't take the job. I was like, it's not, it's not right for me to leave the job. I've just come in eight months. I've been at Portobello trying to set up this distillery. It's not right. And uh, and he said, okay, no worries. And then he called me a couple of weeks later and he was like, do you want the job or not? And I was like, no, I don't want the job. And then he basically said I could, um, uh, he, he basically just said, what's, how do we make this work? That's what he said to me. Not write my own ticket, but he said, right. "How do you make this work?" And I just said, "Like, look, uh, like, let's be honest. I was like, I need, I need something. It's so far away from Australia that number one, please match my salary, all the rest right. of it." And I was like, number two, I need a phone, laptop, travel, that sort of stuff. And um, she was like, "Do me a favor, send me your CV. Let me talk to Cam and Matt, who are obviously the co-founders." And then he called me back a couple of days later. And was like, "If you want the job, it's yours." With you know, this is the offer. Yeah. And I said yes. And I took it, took the job. So and how long ago is that now? That would be three years in a couple of months. Mm-hmm. I do, I think, yeah. Now, at that time, did people in the UK know Four Pillars, really? No. So it was being distributed by um, Liberty Wines that uh, are a great distributor, but they're essentially more, more wine-focused. Mm-hmm. But because we're based in the Yarra Valley, which is wine country. Uh, I think that there was some connections there and some Australian wine had been distributed by them. So Cam and Stu had been working in wine for years and years prior to this. So there was a connection there. Uh, But Liberty Wines, uh, I I think, had more wine contacts and wine accounts. So I think initial sales were a bit slow. So I will say that no, not Mm. a lot of people did know about Four Pillars at the time Mm. of me being hired. However, I knew about them and I knew how well they were doing in Australia and I knew how good the gin was. And by this point, uh, the bottle that you've got right in front of you, the Bloody Shiraz, was also very prominent and becoming quite the, uh, quite the desired uh, juice, really. So um, I knew it was a big job. We were changing distributors uh, to Love Drinks that are based in Clapham. And we set about essentially launched into the UK market and it was brand education brand advocacy brand building it was everything from tastings whether it was two people or 200 people it was conversations whether it be with an independent liquor store down the road or Selfridges it was every little conversation you can imagine about introducing a new gin to the market and I believe that we got there just in time because of the gin boom Mm -hmm. Um, we'd still love to sell more gin obviously today but we got there just in time, and um, it's gone. It's gone well. It's gone well, and we. It, it seems to have a really um, cool. 
reputation. I'm not sure how because it's been, you know, I'm the, I'm the represent, I'm the representation, and I'm not super cool. Although I'm a little bit cool. Um, You're a lot cool. Oh, thanks very much. Um, and so yeah, it's got it's got a cool reputation. We we we're doing very well with uh, with trade. We're starting to build this real sort of familiarity within consumers as well. Uh, we need we need now need that big big retailer on board and we will start to really press on. Mm-hmm. And why do you think you have this cool reputation? Do you know what? I think we we have this internal motto, which, which is we take our gin seriously but not ourselves. Uh, I like to have fun. I like to work hard. I like to play hard as well. Uh, we're also very generous. Um, you know, we should... Stu always told me, never go to a meeting empty-handed. Never go anywhere empty-handed. If you're going to go to a bar, a restaurant, a hotel, a meeting, never go empty-handed. Give them something to take away. They not only will take away whatever you've talked about, but they're going to take something else away. It's going to remind them of that conversation later on. And Four Pillars have always beat it into me to be, to just be, we're a generous brand. So I feel, I don't feel like, maybe we've bought people's affections by leaving gin here, there and everywhere, but it's, it certainly stood us in good stead. Uh, we also throw we've thrown some great parties uh, you know we like to get a little bit wild on occasion especially when Stu and Cam and Matt come over the, the big personalities that uh, if they if we throw dinners you'll know you've been at one of our dinners you know uh, we we parade around on bars and tabletops and I just I just feel like this there was quite a number of gym brands um, that we're doing great, but they were probably being a bit too educational. Um, we forget that, um, I think some people forgot in regards to gin that it's still alcohol. People drink alcohol to, uh, you know, either let loose because they've had a good day or because they've had a bad day or just because they're socialising with friends. But the connotations around drinking alcohol is that you're meant to be enjoying yourself or just letting your hair down. And I feel like people were being too educational. They were ramming, you know, the... <laughs> how much the percentage of juniper you need to have in a gin and uh, what unicorn tears that they've developed from a, from a dolphin. Uh, you know, and I just, I feel like people just forgot to have fun. And, and I, I believe that we brought it back a little bit. We always like to talk about our gins and how we make them and what we do with, what we do with them and the botanicals that go in, but we don't dwell on that. We, we, we make them drinks with it. And then what you're meant to do with a drink is drink it and not sit on it for hours. Uh, and, and that's basically it. So the, the reputation that we have, is, I think, has, has been garnered by having fun with it mm-hmm. and not taking it too seriously, not taking myself too seriously. And that's basically it. But saying that, we are going to dwell on the gin a little bit yeah, for right now. Now, you did talk about the London Rare. I'm sorry. You did talk about the Rare, not the London the rare, but you are right. Oh, no, the London rare. No, it's it's called a rare dry gin. Rare but, dry gin, but it is but it is a a London dry style because the London London dry is a style of gin. But we just thought we're based in Australia. Why are we gonna Why are we gonna call it Four Pillars London dry gin I, from from Victoria? See, I've been I've been living in London. Yeah, the London but, rare dry. But obviously, uh-huh. it, London dry comes comes from here and. Uh, it goes, it goes oh, it dates back to yeah. obviously William of Orange bring it to London, um, but we really just wanted to focus on the on it. Yes, it's London Dry. We didn't want to call it London Dry because we're from Australia, but the fact that there were some botanicals in the rare dry that had never been used in the production of gin before, so that was why we called it rare because it was rare. That was at that time. Now, you'll see a lot of Australian distilleries using those botanicals. But, you know, what is it? Flattery is the biggest... Comp- what is what's it called? Imitation is the biggest form yes. of flattery. So I almost got it right. Did I study English at university? Yes, I did, but I didn't get a degree. Um, so we that's exactly what we did. And we called it Rare Dry Gin. And, that's, and that, was our, that still is our baby. It's still our takes up 60 or 70% of Cam's time, I do believe, making that. Beth, our beautiful uh, Christian Carl, 2,000 litres still, pumps out, you know, two or three times a week. And, and you've garnered lots of awards. Yes. With it as well. We we have um, a plethora of awards. Uh, most recently, the International Wine and Spirits Competition win, which was last Thursday. We won a Gym Producer of the Year, which effectively for 2019 makes us the best year in the world. 
for 2019. Thank you very much. <laughs> Cam flew in a Thursday morning and flew out Saturday morning. Um, so, but you also make some other things, as you said, the bloody Shiraz. Yeah. And where did that come from? Um, that was, I do believe, a happy accident. Um, Cam, Cameron McKenzie, founder and distiller, he, um, I, I believe he was asked to look after some Shiraz grapes, so keep, keep them in a, in a cool store, like in, in our distillery. And I'm pretty certain Cam said to his mate, he was like, look, if you don't come and get these grapes soon, I'm just going to play around with them. Um, and I'm not necessarily sure if these were Shiraz grapes. They may have been Merlot or Cabernet mm-hmm. Sauvignon because I, I, I know that we tried this gin in different ways before we finally found a process. Um, but essentially, we just poured high-proof, 90% gin over these grapes and then put it for a wine press, you know, squeeze the hell out of it. Cam, Cam was tasting it every single day and was, was genuinely like, well, we were onto a winner, I think. And so I believe over the next however many months, he perfected this recipe and decided on uh, Shiraz because, well, not only is it the one of the national grapes of Australia, it's very, uh, particularly, particularly Barossa and et cetera, they're, they're very well known for their Shiraz. Um, it just it became our riff on a slow gin. Slowberries, uh, if they do grow in Australia, you don't grow, you know, there's not a huge amount to cultivate, but being based in the Yarra Valley, we are surrounded by rolling hills of, of vineyards. Um, and this gin, uh, I remember a story Cam actually told me last week. At first, the wineries that we were buying the grapes from uh didn't want anyone to know where we bought the grapes. They were like, do not tell anyone. We don't want to be seen to be helping out the gin business, blah, blah, blah. And now, guess what? Now they all want their name on the bottle. Right. Right? <laughs> um, but I, I, I believe now, if you just look on there, it says, um, just underneath gin, it says Victorian grapes, mm-hmm. right? Victorian Shiraz grapes. There you go. So it used to be Yarra Valley Shiraz grapes. But So next this year, we'll crush 200 tonnes of Shiraz grapes. And it now makes us the biggest crusher of Shiraz grapes in the region, which is bizarre because we're a gin company. Um, so we're, we're actually crushing more Shiraz grapes than wineries that make Shiraz wine. It's very popular. It's very, very popular. And it's quickly become our number one uh, seller in the UK. It's not in, the, not in Australia, but here in the UK where people are going wild for any sort of colour of gin and fruit forward gins and it, it really is uh, it's it's a it's an outstanding gin and serve it with lemon tonic where the lemon just cuts through a natural sweetness and gives it a lift it's absolutely um it's absolutely delicious it's uh, all, all my all my close friends absolutely love it and can't get enough are you playing around with any other things that you can tell us so yeah of course i mean we've we've got our in our main in our core range we have uh, the Bloody Shiraz, the Rare Dry. But we also have the Spiced Negroni Gin, which was a, a gin that was made with a bartender called Jason Williams back in Australia. And it was designed for a Negroni, uh, sort of to work alongside the Campari. Um, and because obviously Campari is that big sort of bitter in, uh, a bitter agent. Uh, and we wanted a gin that sort of elbowed it out of the way, but also worked harmoniously with it, if you can, if you can. And um, that that was using a few more sort of mystical um, botanicals, like, you know, we've, we've, well, no, we've got grains of paradise in there, which is a West African spice from Ghana, which has the clove, notes of clove and session. Mm. We've got fresh ginger, we've got blood orange in there. We've got cubeb, which is an Indonesian java and pepper. It's this big punchy uh rough and ready gin and we we actually call that the ugly bitch to, to the uh to the rare dry um because the rare dry is this very clean crisp premium gin and yet the spice negroni is this punchy uh just real sort of uh, gin drinkers drink however the reason that's now in our core range is because not only is it wonderful to mix with um but we realise when you add tonic to it, it's this wonderful mm. spiced yeah. gin and tonic. And that's why, uh, and it became very, very popular very, very quickly. Uh, and then we also have our wonderful Navy Strength, um, which I think has won more awards than any other Navy Strength in the world. So I can, I think I can officially say on this to you right now that um, it's the best Navy Strength in the world, <laughs> tongue in cheek. Uh, but that is delicious as well. Um, however, what the, 
being this time of year, which this time of year is Christmas, we do also make a Christmas gin, which is a blend of two different gins. And uh, in one of the gins, we actually, in the botanical basket, in the Carter here, we, we actually suspend Christmas puddings that are made by Cam and his daughters because they found one of Cam's and mother's old uh, recipes from Women's Weekly, I think. And so every year, all the kids get together, Stu, Cam and Matt's kids get together and make these wonderful uh, Christmas puddings. We then suspend them in the botanical basket. The vapour passes through. Uh, and, yeah, so it lends all these... This Christmas pudding lends its flavour to the gin, but not only that, we then take those Christmas puddings, package them up and then sell them as well. I know, that's what I was going to say. Oh my God, that Christmas pudding must be so delicious. It is. I've only got one at home, so oh. I was going to bring that today, but I, I really want to try it myself. because well, I'm haven't coming tried over it. for a bite. Oh, you can come over. I think, we're, I think we're doing London Christmas on the 19th. All right, all right. Go, now, I want to try some of this bloody gin. Absolutely. Can we? Should we go try a drink? Let's absolutely try a drink. Crack it open. That's what it's there for. Thanks so much to Joe for sharing his story. He had brought me a bottle of the Bloody Shiraz Gin, which we cracked open and mixed with lemon tonic. Delish. Then he actually set to making me the cocktail of the week. Have you seen Tom Collins? If you were asked that in 1874 and answered that you did not know that Tom Collins about whom you were being asked, you would be told that he was spreading lies about you and could be found just around the corner in that local bar. Of course, then you would rush off to find that Tom Collins to shut him up. This 19th century silliness began happening so often that it was actually called the Tom Collins hoax and memorialized in several songs. The first recipe of the Tom Collins made it into the 1876 edition of Jerry Thomas's Bartender's Guide, made with sugar, lemon, gin, soda, and ice. Our cocktail of the week is Who Shot Tom Collins, made with two of four pillars gins. All you do is mix 30 mLs of rare dry gin and 100 mLs of old-fashioned lemonade in a high ball over ice. Then squeeze in two wedges of lemon and then float 15 mils of bloody Shiraz gin on top. Can you see why it's called the Who Shot Tom Collins? You can find this recipe, more gin recipes, and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. I'm actually one of the only people I know who loves January. I don't mind the dark and the gloom and the bad weather. After the excitement of the holidays cools down, somehow I feel I can get my best work done. Go figure. If you live for Lush Life, would you consider supporting us by buying us a coffee? Just go to buymeacoffee.com slash lushlife and you can donate once or monthly to make sure we are still here every Tuesday. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation, and always drink responsibly. Okay, the second part was mine. Next week, we are joined by the man known as Dr. Whiskey himself. Not only a PhD, but also a member of the Whiskey Band. Until that time, bottoms up.